Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, those are my vocal warm-ups. You're listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast with Ed Krasnick and Jennifer Kalari. And our special guest today is an author, a stand-up, terrific writer, and an extremely funny person who has a new book called Point of Pines through Amazon. And his name is Steve Bluestein. And Steve, I can't wait to talk to because we come from the same part of the country. And in fact, he grew up in the town that my mother comes from, which is Chelsea, Mass., which you don't hear a lot about. But it is the most amazing place. Old world. It's an old world place with a lot of old emotions kicking around. We are the show that unites mental health and comedy. We talk about mental health, but we also practice mental health skills. Jennifer teaches us all different kinds of simple skills that we can use to live happier and healthier. And and we call it a practice because mental health is a practice. It's something that you can do in any moment at any time. The skills are very simple, but in this world, it still seems to be a new thing. Although there are a million podcasts and interview shows and articles and all kinds of media that talks about mental health, very few of them tell you how to do it, tell you what you can actually do. So we try to do that. We have comedians and entertainers, people from all fields, and we talk about mental health issues. We practice them. And and today, I thought that we could talk about all kinds of things, including what do you do when you're stuck? You know, the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and, and expecting a different result. That's how I feel a lot of the time, especially now that we're in, in the COVID days. And also, we'll, we may talk about returning back to normal life and what that will be emotionally, mentally. How do we do this? We're so used to surviving in this way. How do we do it when things start to get better? And they are. And also, what do you avoid? What are you avoiding and why? And let's just take a look at our top, our top avoidances, because I have a whole bunch of them. I always like to do emotional shout-outs to welcome people no matter what emotional state they're in. And here are emotional shout-outs for today. If you're streaming your insecurities on the new Emotions Plus platform, welcome. Everything is a plus now. If you've stopped playing Bridge because it contains the term Trump in it, welcome. If you are ready for the new Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom scrolling film, welcome. If you're looking for a vaccine that will help with the exposure to the Real Housewives franchise, welcome. If you've swallowed an AirPod and are now getting good reception in your stomach, welcome. If you enjoyed the Super Bowl Super Spreader event, welcome. If you're listing quarantining as a skill on your resume, welcome. And if you feel like Survivor and Big Brother should be merged as a reality show during COVID, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I want to highlight something that's a a new app, a service, an actual app. It's called Squirrel News. And what Squirrel News is, it's something called solution journalism. There's a whole movement in the world now that is about journalism covering stories that are solution-based about people, countries, all different kinds of stories about solving problems, solving issues, solving social ills. 
And it's not something that you hear a lot about, but it will be something that you'll be hearing a lot about. And it has to do with mental health. The stuff that Jennifer and I always talk about, what goes into your head? If you watch an hour of MSNBC, it's actually, it's important to know the news, but the problem is it's not news. It's somebody's opinion of some news story. Where do you get your news? What do you put into your head? How do you keep in touch with what's going on? And open to the possibilities of the world. Alan Ball, the the great screenwriter, wrote in American Beauty, the problem is not that there are so many issues in the world, but that people don't know to how to deal with so much beauty. There's actually a lot of beauty in the world. There is, not from my house, but no, there is beauty in the world. And uh, we need to open to the possibilities. That's mental health in this day and age. And I want to bring in our friend from the South and from the North, Jennifer Kalari. And Jennifer, how are we going to return back? What is normal life going to be uh, mentally for people? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And, and from as a mental health practitioner, certainly working with a lot of families and kids and teenagers, I, I, it concerns me a bit because I don't think we've unpacked the impact that it's going to have on young people in particular. So I think, you know, it'll be slow going. And I think one of the things that's increased during lockdown, if, if you were anxious to begin with, you're more anxious now. People who used to kind of make themselves do things, but didn't really want to, but they made themselves, I think are going to have a little bit of a hard time getting out of the house. So that's something to really think about. So we'll, we'll focus on some strategies that actually help you to move forward, to take action and to trust that if you did it before, you can do it again. But Ed, I don't know. This has been so unprecedented and so bizarre. I think we'll be unpacking for years to come the psychological impact that this has had on all of us, really. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you quite honestly myself, I'm actually a little scared about it. I'm scared about returning to normal life and commuting and doing all those things. I didn't really like it before, Right. So what I found, and I've read articles about this in different papers, if you are lucky enough to survive and be okay, be relatively well, you found that you've been able to like look at your life yeah. from both sides now and, and actually, you know, figure out what the quality of life is, that your right. your life probably has a different quality now than it did when you were just racing around. Well, and so the question is, do you want life to go back exactly the way that it was? And, and mo- people who have done okay during this time, and even those who haven't, have really reevaluated, right? What's important, what matters. And there's certain things um, a lot of people aren't so interested in going back to. Uh, right. The busyness, the crazy pace, the, you know, I've had so many kids say to me, I like my life right now. I'm not in the van every five minutes eating dinner in the back seat, driving to four different programs. You know, parents have settled down. There's more, you know, eating together at, at dinner time and life has slowed down to a degree. So I think the important question is, do you even want it to go back exactly the way that it was? But for to a certain degree, you'll have to. And I think that's where it's going to take a little bit of, of help and support to kind of get back to it. We've had to deal with such tremendous change. What can you do to sort of settle yourself down and say, it's not me, that, like the world is a challenging place now and, and there are things that I can do to, to take care of myself. Excuse me, that's my, that's my vaccine coming in. 
I, I told them to call me during the show if it does. Um, no, anyway. And by the way, if you're a vaccine chaser, please call me because I'm, I'm still looking for mine. Yeah. So w- what can you do with, with all of the change? And what is something very simple that you could do where you're saying, I can make it in whatever world it's going to be from now on um, transitioning? Honestly, the simplest thing, and this is usually the answer, no matter what the question is, the simplest thing is look at where you're already thriving. Where are you already coping? Where are you already doing well? Where can you look and say, huh, I really handled that pretty well. The brain is very interesting and it runs on programs and we're used to running the programs of lack. Where are we missing something? Where aren't we doing something well? What's wrong? What's not going to work when we actually get back to it? And if you actually take your brain and train it, to really think about all the areas where you've already made changes, where you're already doing okay, and focus on that. And anytime you start to worry, take your brain back to what is working, what is okay. It sounds so simple, but this is biochemical magic to the brain. You just want to focus on what's working, what you do want instead of what you don't want. It's so simple, but it really works. What's right with this picture? Yes. Let's bring in our guest and we'll talk about this. We'll talk about other things. This man is a very funny comedian who really has been in comedy for a long while and and through some of the best days of comedy, early days of the comedy store around the best comedians in the world. Uh, Also in theater, also a playwright, an author with several books. Um, and somebody who's faced a lot of uh, challenging uh, issues in his life and has maintained the sense of humor somehow, Steve Bluestein. So, Steve, you wrote a book called Point of Pines, and it's not really heavily comedic. It's kind of about some, some difficult issues. What was the hardest thing for you growing up, and, and how did you get through it? My parents had a really dysfunctional marriage, and it was filled with hate. I mean, serious physical hate. I cannot remember one happy moment with the two of them together. My mom came out of the marriage really damaged and vindictive. And I was the brunt of that vindiction, if that's a word. It is now. It is now. I spent my entire childhood thinking one thing, but being told I was wrong. I was told that how I was feeling wasn't right. It wasn't until they both died that I was able to have my own feelings. That freed me to write Point of Pines. Because there are things in my books that I swore I would never tell anyone. Things that I felt were so detrimental to my mother's reputation, I wouldn't allow myself to air those things in public. But it was important for me to to do that for my own mental health. Sure. So it's very courageous to do that because, and especially for somebody who's a comedian, this is not comedic. Like what you're talking, the way you wrote it, what you're talking about, it's not, it's not comedic. It's really very brave writing. I think the comic in you probably struggled with trying to spin it. Uh, Not in this book. Uh, In Memoir of a Nobody, which was my first book, yes, that I struggled with to make funny because I was telling all the backstage stories and 
episodes that went on when I was on the road. And I, I struggled to make that funny. But when it came to uh, talking about my childhood, there's nothing funny about that to me. Uh, and so I told it the way it was. And that's why the point of Pines is doing so well. People really relate to it because it's an honest an honest profile of what my childhood was like. What'd you do to keep yourself, like, uh, how did you get through it emotionally? What did you tell yourself while you're experiencing all this, all this difficulty with your, with your folks? How did you as a kid get through it? I saw a lot of shrinks. Yeah. Uh, at the age of eight, I was sent to the Judge Baker Guidance Center in Boston. Mm. And so I had a lot of help dealing with what was going on. And interestingly enough, I found a report in when my parents, my father, my mother died. I found a report from the Judge Baker Center. And it said that I was a bright, inventive, smart child hmm. and that my mother was refusing to admit that she had a problem and was putting all the blame on me. Wow. It, it so freed me. You know, it just freed me because I once said to her, you treat me like I've done something wrong, and then you go looking for the crime. Mm -hmm. mm. And, you know, all the time she would say, no, I don't. No, I don't. Yeah. And coming from that small town, Chelsea, mm -hmm. where she had a face – for the world, then there was a face that I saw at home. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember uh, one time saying to my mother, I don't have any underwear for to go to school with. It's all in the dirty laundry. And her saying to me, don't you tell me when I have to do laundry. If you need underwear, go out and buy more. How old were you? I must have been uh, nine. <laughs> God. Okay. Jennifer, yeah. I have to tell you that Jennifer works a lot with parents, her okay. organization, connectedparenting.com. You can find so many skills. I mean, one, one of the things that occurs to me, Jennifer, is, is mirroring. Explain to me what mirroring is. Well, that's a good, that's a very good question. Mirroring is basically repeating back to you, reflecting what the child is saying to you. So you're hearing them, and you're also reflecting it with the same kind of emotion. And a lot of people don't get mirrored. They'll have feelings as a kid, and the parent will say something that's completely contradictory and not listening. And so kids have trouble with their own, with their own identity. They think their feelings are not, are not valid. It's, it's Steve, it just sounds like you were invalidated constantly. Like you never saw a reflection back of what you were thinking and feeling. Constantly. Which is, which is really confusing and it makes it really difficult to get a sense of the world. So yeah, I was thinking that and I was, I was also thinking it's so interesting. And so there's parents listening out there. You know, we forget when we throw things out and we just say things like the underwear comment, even though that was, you know, on top of many, many things your mother said to you, but words have such weight. Do you know, do you know what the worst thing my mother said to me growing up? What? It stayed with me my entire life, I still live in the wreckage of what it was. And she said it to me on several occasions. She said, you're a selfish, ungrateful pig. I'm raising a selfish pig. 
Oof. Yeah. See, that, that, that gets like tattooed on a kid's heart, right? It really does. It's so, it's so difficult. It, when, just thinking from a position of a child, right? Adults are bigger. You rely on them for absolutely everything. Food, safety, shelter, absolutely everything. So when your parents say something like that to you, it is, it is absolutely devastating. And it shapes how the child sees themselves. What's incredible though is you look what you've done with it. Like you've you've done an incredible job at sort of redesigning your life and and that story doesn't have to be how you see yourself anymore. And that's huge. That that's the biggest piece of hope I think for anybody listening. The thing is that she would say things like that and then she would come back from a PTA meeting and say to me, "I'm floating on a cloud because the reports I got of you are just wonderful. Yeah. And of course, I never believed her. Yeah, I never believed one report that she told me. I thought she was lying to me. Yeah. And the, you know what? It's interesting. The reason for that is, and parents don't realize this, people don't realize this. I think it takes 11 positive things to undo one negative. So you can imagine the math, right? That you kind of went through in terms of negative comments. And once a child starts to come up with a story, I'm no good, I'm selfish, I'm a pig, all the things your mother said, that becomes a program that just runs. And anything else that somebody tells you doesn't really fit in. I was also glad to hear that you did have some therapy because what's really important about therapy, and we have such a negative idea about it in our culture, but there is at least an adult there who clearly took your words and your voice and who you are and saw you, this bright, interesting kid that your mother couldn't see, I won't say wouldn't, probably couldn't, and we'll get into that in a moment, but you have another adult in your life that offers you a different viewpoint, that that's another person that you can connect with. And there's lots of research that shows that even having one other important adult in your life, it could be a coach, it could be a teacher, it could be a therapist, can be life-changing, really. You know, I really had the aha moment after my mother died, and it came from my, you know, we talk about Chelsea, which is a small town. And all I ever heard from those people in that small town was, oh, your mother's so wonderful. I love your mother. She's such a great person. She does such wonderful things, you know. And I would look and think, there must be something wrong with me yeah. because all I see is this monster. Yeah. And that, so it must be me that has the problem. Of course. Well, after, after my mother died, uh, I got a phone call from someone in Chelsea, someone who had worked with my mother and for over 30 years. And he said to me, I want you to come and meet with me. I said, look, there's nothing I, you could say to me that I'd be interested in. And he said, I just sent a car. You're coming to me. Oh, wow. So I went to the meeting with him. And he said to me, I just wanted you to know that when your mother dies, none of us here will be at the funeral. Wow. And I said, what? He said, what that woman had put me through for the last 30 years is beyond. He said, let me tell you how bad it was. He said, when my daughter was getting married, my wife said to me, if you invite Leona, I won't come to the wedding. Wow. Wow. And it gets even worse than that. I had been receiving emails from a woman whose name, who signed her name Tuxbury. The emails were like, there's something really wrong with you. 
your mother's a wonderful person and you don't see how great she is and you need to see therapy because there's something wrong with you. And not one or two emails, but, you know, on a regular basis. I said to this guy, I said, do you know about, uh, do you know anything about this woman in Tewksbury? And he said, he put up his finger and says, hold on. He hit the intercom. He said, Joanne, would you come in here? And so Joanne came in and he said, tell Steve about the lady from Tewksbury. And she looked down at the ground and she shuffled her feet and she said to me, it was your mother. And I said, what are you talking about? My mother doesn't know how to use a computer. And she said, yes, she would come into my office, dictate what I was supposed to send to you, and then I would send it for her. Wow. Oh, my God. Unbelievable. Mm. Well, it gets even worse because (laughs) she gets voted Woman of the Year in Boston, right? I didn't go. I couldn't get myself to go. Of course. I said to these people, well, if you all felt this way, why did you nominate her for Woman of the Year? And they said, we didn't nominate her for the Woman of the Year. She nominated herself. <laughs> it sounds like Mommy Dearest without the wire hangers. That's what I was but- thinking. Let me tell you something. I read Mommy Dearest, and when I finished with it, I said, so? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. This is nothing. Wow. Uh, this is nothing. But a face for the world and, and a different face for the kid. That's the whole story. I see that a lot, actually, in, in different families. You know, it's interesting. People have these kind of inner circles, and it's very, very common to have someone with this outgoing, oh, oh you're so lucky that's your mother, you're so lucky that's your father, and then inside the home – they're terrorizing people. Right. And it, it's it's actually quite common. You actually see it with kids too. You'll see little kids who are perfect at school, lovely, and the parents are like, oh, look at that. And and at home they're 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 out of control. So it, and that's usually with people of tremendous difficulty with emotional regulation. And your mother clearly had difficulty with that. And and the only way that somebody can get through having a horrendous parent like this and writing the book is, I think, so important because you're not alone. Do you know how many other people are out there feeling exactly like that? That's why it's so brave, regardless of what you went through with your mother's reputation, which she clearly created for herself, actually. Yeah, sure. It gives people hope that they're they're not alone and that they can get past this and they can get beyond this. And for any parents listening, when you talk to your child in a way that's so cruel and so nasty and it feels fantastic coming out of your mouth, you're being horrendous, you're being awful, and you're causing damage, right? And it's lifelong damage that you're still unraveling, right? And then the other piece that I think too, as an adult looking back, if you've had kind of really difficult parenting, the only way you can really get through it is to say, whoever your mother was and however she was, she was not well, okay? A well person does not do any of those things. Well, you want to hear something funny. I was uh, in a doctor's office with a friend, a close family friend. And the two of us were talking about what was going on at home, at my house with my mother at that moment. And we were talking, there was a woman sitting across from us. There was a lull in our conversation and the woman looked over at me and she said, I'm sorry, I I have to say something because I can hear your whole conversation. And and right away, my heart sank because I thought I was going to get in trouble. Yeah. Yeah, I was in trouble. Mm -hmm. She said, 
If a mother says there's something wrong with the child, then there's something wrong with the mother. And that absolutely changed my life. See, that's huge. That's huge. And the, and what your mother said to you, most of the time when someone's in this much, it is this nasty and this out of control, they're in so much pain. They're, they're just, they're afraid and they're in pain. And every word she said, what did she say to you again? You're a selfish, ungrateful, ungrateful pig. pig. So that's projection. Honestly, when people are in that much pain, they literally spew out the most horrible things that they're actually thinking about themselves. And it's so well, hard for a kid to know that. How could a kid ever know that? But you can probably see that now, right? I, 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 I can. And it was why when she was dying, I was able to forgive her and be there uh, in Florida for her to be her, her advocate. But, there, you know, when it, that, those actions moved into my adulthood, too, because after I wrote the first book, Memoir of a Nobody, my mother came out to visit and we were driving back from the airport and there was a friend in my in the car and we hadn't even left LAX yet. And my mother said, I just don't know why you wrote that book. Nobody cares about your life. Mm. And my friend who was in the backseat with my mother just sat there with her jaw, with her mouth open. You know, I, I, that was something I heard all my life. It was nothing to me, but she was shocked. She was shocked. Yeah. Well, and it's hard because somebody like your mother is so used to like um, being so prickly and so on the attack and so shocking and so loud that people don't usually respond back. They're stunned. So so she's not actually, it's like emotional sonar. She's not getting a, a reflection back of how terrible her words actually are. Because she doesn't care. Yeah, she she she's in so much pain that she can't care, and that not only does she not care, she doesn't think it's wrong because she's not getting any feedback from the environment that is wrong. What's interesting about talking with you guys about this is that Ed happens to share uh, a family member with m my mother. My mother married a relative of Ed's, and so to my to Ed to that part of the family to that new family. Mm -hmm. She was a totally different person. Yeah. yeah. Totally revered and loved. And when she yeah. died, those grandchildren got up and told stories about things my mother had done. And I stood there with my mouth like open. Flabbergasted, right? Yeah. <laughs> because I couldn't believe. But it became so obvious to me that I wasn't the family that my mother wanted for her self-image. She needed the family that she got with her second marriage. And so she, as an egomaniac, could flourish with them where she couldn't flourish with me. Right. And I understand I understand that. Yeah. And you were a product of her of your father, who she had a terrible marriage with and needed to get away from. Right. She actually said something to to a, fr to a friend at work who later related it to me, she said, I had a horrible first marriage. We couldn't even raise a normal son. Oh, God. And <laughs> that person told that to me, and everybody reacts like the way you ju two just did. Yeah. Oh, my God. How could you? No. But to me, that was such release, such relief, yeah. because I, that's exactly how I felt she felt about me all my life. Yeah. 
that I wasn't normal and that there was something wrong with me and that she had to put up with it. Hearing her actually verbalize it was freeing for me. Wow. It actually, uh, you know. Can I ask a question about her? Because my, you know, my therapist had is like going crazy here, but I mean, she certainly was a narcissist, no question. Right. Yes. Um, but I'm wondering, was she diagnosed with anything else? Do you know? No, she would not allow herself to be. Like I said, she she went to the Judge Baker Clinic and they told her that she should be getting therapy, but she refused. Yeah, it had to be all on you. You were the barometer. You were the person holding all of that for her. Right. Um, so- I would suggest, and this is not a diagnosis at all, Just just explore borderline personality disorder. Yeah. Just yeah. look it up. Yeah. For sure. Absolutely. And, yeah. and and being a child of that, and there's a lot of supports because it, it really does mess with your head. Yeah. I mean, in one of my books, I wrote, I wrote an episode that, uh, that something that my mother had done. And then the tagline was, and I'm the one that it was, was sent for therapy. Yeah. Mm. Mm. You know. Jennifer, how do, how do you, you know, I, I'm just curious. So you do family therapy. Mm-hmm. When people come in and you see a parent that is damaged mm-hmm. to the point where they are doing these cert- these kinds of behaviors with their kids, what's the therapy? Well, I mean, obviously, if there's, if there's serious abuse, then you need to involve children's services, right? Like that becomes a right. completely different issue. And, and a lot of the people that come who are drawn to connected parenting, the whole model is really how to use language and empathy and connection as medicine, right? And there's so many kids out there right now, Steve, going through exactly what you went through right now, this very moment, right? So, you know, often I'll have like, if if the parents, if there's two parents, even if they're split up, then I have one doing the connected parenting method. And that's very, very protective. It can help. It'll work if only one parent is doing it try to get the appropriate support for the other parent. But if it's borderline or narcissism, it's really difficult. It's, it's incredibly difficult. And if there's not actual physical abuse going on, you can't make someone get therapy. You can't make someone get help. So you do your best with whatever age that kid is, just like Steve talked about, and help them understand that that's not the reality, the way that their parent sees them. And that's a lifesaver for some kids. It really is. Well, you know, what's interesting too, is that my father who plays in this equation wasn't strong enough to fight her. Yeah. And so he withdrew Mm -hmm. and I didn't see my father for decades when I was an adult and I was on my own and she was out of the picture. He came back and we had a very good relationship. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That was a good thing. But growing up, you know, my hatred of my father. Well, yeah, because she told you he was so horrible, probably, right? Not only did she tell me he was horrible, but she would tell me that people would come up to her in the street and tell her how bad he was. Yeah, that's a, that's a real sign of someone with, with borderline and narcissism, that they create a community of people that hate the person they hate. It's right. It's really difficult. Uh, wow. And they will find, they will, uh, you know, often these people find partners that will not challenge them. Well, that's what I was talking about with the emotional sonar. Like anyone drawn to your mother at all, she she would either be this perfect shiny, sort of shiny, unbelievable person that people are drawn to, or she's a monster, right? And so when people like this say these shocking, horrible things, 
most people don't say, what are you talking about? How could you say that about your child? And most people would be too afraid to challenge her. So they end up with this very skewed feedback system where they don't actually see themselves in that way at all. And your, your dad is a perfect example. He was just completely silenced by her. And so she, he never gave her any alternate reality back. The time that my mother and I really had really bad problems when, was when I became a, a teenager and I started having my own personality sure. and my own opinions. Yeah. She would not be able to tolerate that at all. No. At all. We get to a part of the story where Steve is saying, I was able to forgive her and be her advocate. Yeah. What is the self-repair that anybody who's listening right now, what do they do for themselves? And, and what's the repair for the parent? Well, so here's the thing, Ed, and this is really tough. And Steve, you can probably know what I'm going to say. Like sometimes someone is so lost in their own anger and bitterness and sadness. And that person no matter how awful, is actually in terrible pain. Terrible pain. Like I wouldn't wish if it is borderline or anything like it, that on anyone. They do not have happy lives. And there's usually trauma, right, from their childhood. There's usually kind of ancestral trauma passed down from generations. So sometimes, you know, somebody has to kind of wake up and realize, oh my God, it's me. And it just doesn't think, like, I'm not surprised that Steve's mom could never do that right? It had to be Steve. It had to be somebody else. It could never be her. So sometimes you can't help the parent, but the kid, that's a different story. And it usually comes from really important adults. It could be a priest. It could be a rabbi. It could be a teacher. It could be a neighbor, somebody else who says, Hey, I, you're a beautiful kid. You're smart. You're funny. You've got so much to offer. And that offers you a different reality than the one that is predominantly presented at home. And that's really the only thing that, that can really help a kid like that. Yeah, it's just really difficult, though, to believe that. It is. As an adult, I still don't believe it. You know, people say, oh, you're so funny, you're so smart, you're such a nice person. And I just, I, I always say that the love stops about a foot away from me. Uh, and that's hard because that's a program, right? So part of first even understanding that it's a program that parents are the architects of their children's brains, right? That when, when a child is in utero, there's really only a rough map laid down for the brain. It's all the interaction after that child is born that literally grows the brain, that shapes the brain. So think about that for a second. Now, it doesn't really matter where you are in life, if you're a kid or you know wherever you are age-wise, the brain is neuroplastic. The brain can rewire. The brain right. can change. So step one is to know that that was a program. And that was a bitter, tragic, sad program that your mother had to put on you in order to survive somehow. Mm. It had to be your fault because otherwise it's hers. And if it's hers, she'd be annihilated. It, it really comes down to that, right? So, so it's learning that is a program and then learning where there's alternative programming and learning to sort of let in those other messages that you would have received and are still receiving uh, and you don't have to be your story. You can be the storyteller, which you have been through your books, right? But recognizing, and, and, and we've talked about this in, in other shows too, we all have something called implicit memories. And all of our memories that make up how we see ourselves and who we think we are, a lot of them are programmed prior to the age of seven. Mm -hmm. So I can only imagine seven-year-old you, okay? Just trying to deal with this barrage from this, this very angry, bitter woman. 
But we the, the hardware only gets laid down to handle long-term memories after the age of seven. So everything prior to the age of seven really gets programmed like an emotional tattoo into our psyche. And part of it is just recognizing, oh, that's a pattern. Oh, that's my mother. Oh, that's not actually how I need to see myself anymore. And looking for all the evidence in other areas of your life that are to the contrary. I had a very close, dear friend uh, from Chelsea who I grew up with, and she moved out to California. And we, you know, we were like, I, I say I've created a family of friends. Yeah, you had to. I never had a family. But I said something to her one day and she said to me, okay, that's how your mother would answer me. Now answer me like your father. Oh, I love that. It it was such an eye opener because I knew exactly what she was saying to Mm -hmm. me. And it changed the way I dealt with people. You know, uh, it made me aware that my words have power and that I've learned from my mother the wrong way to to react. Right. And that you can you can be the programmer. Right. right. So even just noticing, uh, oh, that's the mother program. Like literally just distance yourself from it and identify it that way. Oh, that's mother programming. Right. It's never gonna go away because it's part of, you know, the fabric, but you don't have to run the program. Well, a shrink said to me, it 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 may never change. What will change is the way you react toward it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. The way you respond. How did you get to this place of forgiveness? What was that road? After the the person, the the man from work told me that what I had been feeling all my life was real, that, you know, you know, I had been told that, oh, they love me so much. They can't work without me. And, you know, and every time I would say to my mother, come out to California for a visit. No, I can't. I'm, I have a meeting. No, we're opening a new building. No, we're having a, a fundraiser. So, you know, I thought that she was, you know, the be all and the end all at that facility mm-hmm. and learning that she wasn't. No, not at all. She was feared. Yes, she was feared. Yeah. That people felt about her the way I felt about her. It, it said, okay, I'm not crazy. It's her. Yeah. You know, uh, one time uh, I, a therapist had given, had put me on meds because my mother was coming to visit. And she came to the house and she said to me, look at that lampshade. You've got too big a light in that lampshade and it's burning the shade. And I looked at the lampshade that had nothing wrong with it. And I said, <laughs> where? And she pointed to a spot on the shade that had nothing on it. And instead of fighting with her and trying to convince her that there was nothing wrong with it, I said, I'll change the bulb. And I said, because in my head, I said, oh, she is crazy. So this was the road to when your mom needed you and she was sick and she needed you to be her advocate and actually take care of her. You were able to do that? Not only was I able to do that, but I emptied her house and I cleaned it and I got throughout because she was like a hoarder and I got rid of all the crap that she had saved. I, I felt it was my responsibility. And I did that with her house in Florida 
and I did it with her house in Boston, and I did it with my father's house. Wow. Was that cathartic for you? Like, did you, was that a, was that an interesting process for you to empty out their belongings? Here's the interesting part. I have been on my own for so long, getting the crap end of the stick mm-hmm. in, ter- in terms of family, that I just accepted that this is what I would have to do. Wow. Because this is what my family is like. I, I, and so I did it. You know, I did it. And I actually uh, brought a friend from California with me. And she she was going through paperwork from my mother. And she turned and I looked at her and she had her mouth open. I said, what? She said, do you realize what your mother was doing? And, and she told me about this. My mother would... Uh, Oh, it's a long story. It's it's just say she was a crook as well. Wow. And and I totally totally believed it because in in Point of Pines, I tell about my grandfather who was uh, not arrested but was accused of stealing money from his job and who was going to jail. And my grandmother went to her to the employer and said took off her diamond rings and said, don't put him in prison. I have five kids. I can't do this on my own. And so my my grandmother promised that she would work out all the money. Well, 25 years later, I learned that my mother was my grandfather's bookkeeper. Wow. And it was my mother who had wow. stolen the money from my grandfather. And my grandfather took the rap for it. That is unbelievable. Look, look at the wake this woman left. And then she left it with her apartment. You had to shovel up all her crap even after. So what's so interesting about the lampshade thing, that's such a perfect metaphor, though. That's what she did to you. She saw spots and imperfections that weren't there. Her right. brain distorts things and distorted things. It's quite a tragic, tragic life that she leaded. She, you know, she, In the end, I'm sure she was not a happy person as much as she pretended to be. Oh, she pretended to be, but you know, uh, I suffer from anxiety. I would always say to my mother, "Are you having an anxiety attack?" And she'd go, "No, I don't have anxiety." Hmm. She would sit there. She would sit in a chair, and she'd be going, <gasps> "Yeah." <sighs> you know what's so interesting about anxiety, and then I, I would love to get back to where Ed was going with forgiveness because I actually think that's huge. But what happens, we think of anxiety as, as being this thing that goes inward and you're afraid to go out and you don't want to do anything and you're you know, super nervous and shy. But there's the anxiety either goes inward like that or it goes outward into prickliness, nastiness, trying to control everything and everyone. And sometimes the nastiest people are actually anxious and they don't realize it. And in terms of forgiveness, all the work I had done with the people in Chelsea absolutely made me understand that it wasn't me. And I actually felt sorry for her in the end. Mm-hmm. And that's why I could be her advocate. I was at that hospital every single day. Wow. Talking to doctors, trying to figure out what exactly I should do. And when it was decided that she should go into hospice, I said to the hospice nurse, I said, you know, my history with my mother is very volatile. And I feel like I'm killing my mother. And I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing, not out of vengeance for what she did for me all my life, 
but because it's the right thing. This is what needs to be done to a person who's in this condition. And the woman said to me, look, your mother has laid it all out. She, and she showed me all the paperwork. This is what she said she wanted to do. So you do it. And I still went to the grandchildren and said, I want you all to send me an email and tell me that this is what I should be doing, that you're all in agreement with me. Because I didn't want down the road them to say, you killed my grandmother. Oh, that's amazing. I'm I'm also so struck by the people from her work. Like that's why for anybody who thinks like, should I say this to somebody? Is this worth telling someone? Look what it did for you. Like if you're holding a piece of information that you think could change someone's life, don't sit on it. That was life altering getting in that car that day. You know, what's also interesting is that uh, on my birthday, my mother would play this game. She, she never bought me a gift my entire life. Wow. Not, not a birthday gift, not a graduation. She would write me a check. That's the way... That's how she felt she showed love. Mm -hmm. But she would play the game Mm. on my birthday every year of how much I was going to get that year. And some years would be a lot of money and some years not not a few, you know, dependent on how she felt I acted toward her in the previous year. And this man, Mm. this man from work on my last birthday wrote me an email and he said, this is the time of year your mother loved the most because she enjoyed tormenting you over how much money you were going to get. And I said to her, you're a horrible mother, but she didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. That's how she had power over mm. you. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, but yet at the end, yet at the end, you were, you were there for well, her. And, and that's when you were free, right? So when you hold bitterness right. and anger towards another human being, no matter how horrible, and this is my favorite saying, and I wish I knew where it came from, but it, it, being angry and being bitter and angry towards someone and holding on to it is like swallowing poison and expecting the other person to die. Right. Right. You're the one who ends up carrying it around and it ruins your life. So, so having that moment at the end of, of forgiveness and selflessness was just the ultimate. That's how you're free. Forgiving. Forgiveness is an incredibly powerful healing emotion. It's not a switch. You don't just flip the switch and you forgive. It's a process. Right. It takes time. It really, really does. Well, self-forgiveness too. Even if nothing that you've done is your is your fault, you can forgive yourself with a kindness, you know. And and if anybody's listening who relates to this story in any way, uh, you know, the thing that you can do right now is be kind to yourself. The thing that you can do right now is be kind to someone else. And it's a very it it doesn't have to be dramatic, but it is dramatic. Mm-hmm. It is a dramatic act to be kind in today's world. You know, the book is called Point of Pines, and you should find it on Amazon. You can find it wherever you get the, you get books. Point of Pines. Steve is a great writer, very talented comic. And Steve, I'll just tell you that uh, my mother's name was Shirley. Yeah. She was a wonderful person as you are a wonderful person. Yeah. And that's how she would say it. She said, Steve, you're wonderful. You're marvelous. And you are a marvelous person. I'm very proud of you. That's how she would say it. Sure. So, and then she would say, "Does anybody have any sweet and low?" Yeah. Um, but, but honestly, I, uh, I know your mo- knew your mother. 
Well, you probably did. And I know we all, we come from the same place. Yeah. I know we have mutual people. So people in Chelsea are going to hear this. And I'm really happy that, uh, you know, I'm happy that you're here and I'm happy that you came on. And it's very nice to talk to you. And we have to do it again. And we'll do, we'll do more about you. We'll do more about you know, your work and more about your comedy too. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve. Wow. That was really powerful. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're a good person. Take and take good care. And, you know, let's get our vaccines and go on. That's the main thing. There's healing that can be done in any moment, in any moment. So if you listen to Steve and you listen to his courage, wherever you are, whatever your circumstances are, give yourself a you know, a little bit of, a little bit of kindness, a little bit of understanding. Keep listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. You can find us wherever uh, you get your podcasts or at, at Make Light, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T, one word, makelightmedia.com. We'll be back next week with a whole new show. But if you feel like writing us, our social pages are up, Mental Health Comedy Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and soon on Twitter. And Jennifer, thank you so much again for, uh, for all that you bring. You're welcome. And uh, keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari and Steve Bluestein. We will see you next week.